well, Dad, I'm thinking this Celsius situation isn't going to turn around. You know, I, I think maybe I'm going to be out on the, all that sweet yield. For people who don't remember, before the Terra Luna collapse, there was this neobank, quote unquote, called Celsius. And they were essentially offering kind of a crypto checking account where you could deposit cryptocurrency and then they would give you yield, especially if you held the token that they issued, the sell token. Yeah, got to get that token. And they would even do lending against your cryptocurrency and they would give you better rates the more sell token you held. And we discussed this in some of our early episodes and I expressed a lot of skepticism about where this yield was coming from. Because the problem with crypto yield is it doesn't actually make sense. Yield or the interest rate that you're given if you lend funds to someone, it makes sense in established industries. Maybe you're going to create a farm or something and sell food. So I can lend you money to finance that operation and you can give me 5% interest on that loan. And that makes sense because I understand the business model. But it's not like people are buying cryptocurrency, staking it or, or giving it to Celsius in exchange for, you know, as collateral to borrow money to go start businesses and do traditional economic activity. The only reason to borrow crypto funds is to engage in speculation. And part of that is because the cryptocurrency slash Bitcoin economy is still very nascent. There's very little adoption. It's not really used as an economic monetary asset at this point. It is in many cases, in some cases in on the Lightning Network, we can make small value transactions, and it's actually kind of a better experience than traditional credit card processing. But on the whole, most crypto assets are used for either savings or speculative purposes. And so when people borrow against those assets on platforms like Celsius, that's generally to engage in speculation. And the problem with that as, the, as a lending platform is that all of your customers borrowing is like correlated risk. So they're all going to not pay back at the same time. And so there's just basically no way to do that safely. And it was not disclosed what they were doing to their customers. And so when the Terra Luna disaster happened, Celsius also took massive losses in that. And then it sort of turned out it was a Ponzi scheme. And finally, the CEO has been arrested. Maybe one thing to kind of underscore in all of this is the CEO was quite the hype man. He held multiple community streams. He was going to cryptocurrency events and really positioning uh, Celsius as the better alternative to the bank. They were doing the world a favor by coming up with a better bank that gave people the yield they deserved. And he really positioned it as it's even better than holding your own Bitcoin. Maxis are responsible for so many people losing their Bitcoin. If they kept it at a trusted custodian like us, they always have access to it. We have support. They can work with us. Don't self don't self custody your Bitcoin. Keep it at Celsius. These were the types of things that uh, Alex would say, and it would just drive people crazy because if you understood, like the yield has to come from somewhere, they must be gambling on DeFi behind the scenes, which is kind of exactly what was happening while he was out there telling you it was better, safer, it was a better bank, and you're silly for doing your own custody because eventually you'll lose it. Also going on Twitter and pumping his token when they were trying to raise funds. He would go out there and do things to pump the price of their Celsius or sell token, whatever it was. And they would come up with schemes and ways to convince you to convert your Bitcoin or whatever it might be into sell token. So that way you could get even better yield because you could always convert back at any time. So what's the risk? And that really, to me, is all put together, if not criminal, definitely evil behavior. People close to Alex says say that, you know, maybe he was a true believer and that he just didn't think 
the bad things could ever happen, that everything would come crumbling down. Number was always going to go up. But if you look at his past behavior in other ventures and you look at some of the statements he's made closely, I, I think there was an intent, in my opinion, to misinform and mislead people and uh, to make money off of that. Well, I mean, if you're a narcissistic scammer, the fact that you're a narcissist doesn't excuse your behavior is sort of my take on Alex Mashinsky. He has a history of lying. He lied about creating VoIP or something. You know, he claims mm-hmm. that he holds a patent to voice over IP, and that's just factually incorrect. It's, it's a lie. Well, but even if you bought into that, it doesn't give him a background to run a, you know, a banking 2.0 institution. And it's not a bank. There is no insurance. In the United States, a bank is a company that has a state or federal charter. It engages in insurance programs. It also is highly regulated. And to affinity scam with a bank, when really what you are is a website with ridiculously thin infrastructure, no serious custody. I mean, the funds were like custodied by Alex. I mean, he had full access to all of these funds. There was no qualified custodian. They had their own yield program where they were basically giving money to this degen trader who then lost a bunch of money and then sued them. And then they sued him. They also invested in a Bitcoin mining facility. Yes, Celsius was involved in Bitcoin mining, which is just crazy because they had short-term deposits, short-term liabilities, and they invested them in a long-term capital project like a Bitcoin mine, which is just nuts. The return profile does not match the liabilities. So at the very worst, there's sort of incompetence and absolute stupidity leading to maybe unintentional deception of customers, but they're also breaking securities laws by issuing their own token. I mean, everything about Celsius in a certain sense sucked. At the same time, why was it a hard sell? Like, why did it get popular? Well, I think because banking does suck, right? I mean, Alex did have a point. Banking does suck. You don't get any yield or you didn't. I think you still don't in most banks. And inflation is non-negative. So you need yield if you don't want to be diluted. And they give you tooling. You know, you can log in, you can move funds, you can get a loan, you can do all this stuff in seconds. You don't got to go to a branch. I mean, there's things about it that are nice if it was a real bank, and it never was. And it's kind of funny because ultimately they were just taking people's Bitcoin, right? They walked away with a bunch of Bitcoin and they were going to take your crappy altcoins and they were going to use them to fund a Bitcoin mine where they were going to mine Bitcoin, right? Like ultimately they wanted your Bitcoin and they just promised something they couldn't ever deliver. And, you know, you called them out on it a long time ago. Others have called them out on it, but people love yield. They just love that. They love that idea. They can get their hands on an asset, put it in a savings account, and it just sits there and does nothing but make them money. They love the idea. And I I understand it. People love scams because scams are the ultimate something from nothing, like creating something out of nothing. And so there's always have been scams in history. I think even in like Babylonian writings, they talk about scammers. Yeah, there's just always this desire to sort of like, uh, you know, get a perpetual motion machine, a financial perpetual motion machine. And I think that there is some truth that financial innovation and financial scamming overlaps much of the time. What's the difference between success and failure in both the case of FTX and in the case of Celsius? The Fed tightened, the altcoin market went bust, funds dried up, and their scams were exposed. If we lived in a world where the Feds kept rates at zero for another year or two, um, or maybe for whatever reason, the altcoin market was just ripping still, 
they may have not gone bust, right? The, the music stopped. But if the music hadn't stopped, they may still have been pulling this off. And who knows, inevitably, where they could have gotten this. Probably for the worse. But it, it really kind of shows you like that that old saying about when the, when the tide goes out, you can see who isn't wearing shorts. Like, that's what happened. The tide went out. The music stopped. Tide went out. Pick your analogy. Uh, I just think it's fascinating that they just, they could have been right. Like, Sam Bankman-Fried could still be running FTX right now if he'd just gotten a few more million dollars. Another example is Tether. There have been periods in Tether's history where they were insolvent, but they managed to weather those periods. And now it kind of looks like Tether is a financial perpetual motion machine. I mean, they just print money. What is that saying? Uh, believe it till you make it or whatever. Like that's kind of what they're doing. Only they're just playing with everybody's money in the meantime. And it, it takes a certain kind of real arrogant personality, a real narcissist to be able to pull that off. Couldn't imagine. I wouldn't be able to sleep playing around with people's money like that. But that's why, you know what? I just don't, I just don't even bother with any of it because eventually the music does stop. Eventually the tide does go out and I'm just still sitting here stacking sats. And I, I looked at Bitcoin as a relative return for the last year and a half to all other cryptocurrencies. And it's just, there was nowhere else to be for like over the last year. Bitcoin is the only play that made sense. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Friday, July 14th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with... Hey, it's me. It's Chris. Welcome back, everybody. On today's show, we're going to cover two articles by Lynn Alden, a piece she wrote about the relationship between interest rates and inflation and her latest market update, which is very prescient, very interesting. In altcoins, Ripple has won a lawsuit. Well, in altcoin news, Ripple has achieved a victory against the SEC as a U.S. judge ruled that selling XRP tokens to VCs is illegal. That's a securities offering, bad, but it's cool if you just dump them on retail. Very interesting logic there. So we'll kind of get into that and how that relates to Bitcoin and also Ethereum. We also have some data that suggests that proof of stake on Ethereum has resulted in massive centralization in the form of demand for liquidity staking tokens. How do you get a liquidity staking token? You stake your Ethereum with a custodian. Also in Bitcoin education, we have the latest Optech, which includes a lot of news about Lightning Network Protocol Specification Consolidation. Very exciting. And luckily, Chris is an expert on software specifications, and we will cover that. And then we have some boosts, and that's our show. A show indeed. Two Two, not one, but two Lynn Alden articles. Well, when it rains, it pours. And they're both related because Lynn Alden's latest market update, it really builds on her latest research article about the relationship between interest rates and inflation. One assumption in current Federal Reserve economic policy is that by raising the federal funds rate, which is the interest rate paid on certain U.S. government bonds or notes. A bond is a longer duration security, a note is a shorter duration security. And by increasing the interest rate on these notes, this will reduce inflationary pressures in the U.S. economy. And there's so much wrong with this point of view. I'm just going to describe how I believe the Fed wants us to think that this relationship works. So the Fed considers inflation to be consumer price inflation. And therefore, when the price of goods goes up, this shows up as CPI. And the CPI is quite problematic because it's highly influenced by energy prices. Frankly, energy prices are not really, in my view, energy prices are not really related to federal fund interest rates because the amount of energy in the world is not a result of short-term borrowing 
and capital markets. It's the result of long-term investments in energy infrastructure. So the investments that were made 10, 15, 20 years ago are producing the energy today. So if energy is a large contributor to CPI, then changing short-term and even long-term forward interest rates are not going to change that. Does that make sense? Yes, but it's it's like, well, what do you do then? Because if you are suffering the results of a lack of investment from 15 years ago, but it hasn't really impacted the market until now, that's driving up prices. It's not really the lack of investment of 15 years ago. It's actually sort of energy policy, you know, macro events like the war in Ukraine. Okay, investment might be the wrong term, yeah. And so what I'm kind of getting at is that consumer price inflation is is actually not really related to interest rates. Uh, perhaps the component of the CPI that is tangentially related to mortgage expense is related to interest rates. Well, wouldn't that make sense since prices started going up before they raised rates? Things started getting more expensive. You know, gas started going up before they started raising the interest rates. So the assumption of the Federal Reserve is that inflation in the real economy is driven by something called the Phillips curve, and that the main driver of inflation is wages. And so as wages rise, regular people bid up the price of finite goods. And as a result, the way that you crush inflation is you raise interest rates, which impairs business financing, and therefore businesses slow down the rate at which they're hiring people, and this reduces wage pressure. And then workers stop bidding up the prices of goods. And that is completely false. That's just not how the economy works or inflation works. The price spikes we saw during the pandemic, at least in the United States, were mainly due to a supply chain disruption that increased lead times on goods coming out of China and also a shock of stimulus checks that were being spent by middle to higher income Americans who did not lose their job during the pandemic. They could work from home and just spend their stimmy check. And that produced a large amount of demand for certain goods, generally physical goods that could be enjoyed at home during lockdown or RVs or camper vans or camping stuff, stuff that you could do in a kind of socially distanced environment. And there was a inability of supply chains to provide huge amounts of those goods instantaneously. And so prices shot up. Also, there was a demand for housing as people who had savings and access to borrowing suddenly realized that their downtown condo was a little tight if you had to spend 24 hours a day there and wanted to move out to the countryside. Uh, some of that has reversed, but you know that's my take on where the real inflationary impulse came from. So how does that lead to Lynn Alden's article? Well, she gets into how inflation and interest rates are connected because the entire Fed policy is that they're going to crush inflation by raising interest rates. So there are a couple of problems with that. One, when inflation was 11%, why didn't they raise interest rates to 11%? You know, if, if your interest rate is at 4% and inflation is at 8 then real interest rates are negative 4 That's incredibly stimulative, right? Well, the answer is it's just not feasible to raise interest rates really quickly because what destroyed the balance sheets of Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank were interest rate raises. They purchased government securities with very low yield. As interest rates increased, those securities had to be marked down. So if your security is uh, paying 0% yield and interest rates go to 1%, you can't sell that security. You have to sort of, you have to adjust the price of that security until when you sell it, it uh, equals the uh, yield that a 1% yielding security. And so that means that the price has to be discounted steeply. 
So it turns out that you can't really raise rates too quickly or even very high because it actually uh, blows up the banking system. So Lynn Alden observes that high interest rates help to slow down bank lending and they incentivize holding US currency. And so high interest rates actually help reduce the money supply growth. Basically, Lynn's model of inflation has nothing to do with CPI. Her view is that inflation is the growth of the money supply. And there are two ways to grow the money supply in Lynn's view. One is to have bank lending. And so high interest rates can actually slow down bank lending because they hurt banks' balance sheets. Then banks are less willing to lend into the real economy. This cre- this uh, results in less money creation. Or you can also create base money through uh, essentially government money printing. And so as the federal government issues US debt that is then purchased by the Federal Reserve, that's money creation. Because even though the Federal Reserve doesn't directly buy US government debt, the debt is eventually sold to the Federal Reserve, who then purchases it with newly created dollars. So those those are new dollars that go into the economy. I think the general belief is that bank lending is more inflationary than government spending. At least it has been in the past maybe 10 or 20 years in the United States. But government spending can also be highly inflationary in uh, certain examples. But the problem, at least in the United States, is that high interest rates exacerbate the fiscal side of inflation because the US government has a very high fiscal deficit. And so as you increase interest rates, the US government actually has to pay more interest rate expense. And this increases the US government spending into the real economy. So this is kind of the Kobayashi Maru situation. There's no winning here. You can reduce money supply growth by increasing the interest rate on government debt, but you increase money supply growth because the US government has so much debt that every point increase in interest rates is something like $300 billion a year or, or, or perhaps even higher. And so there really isn't a solution to the US's inflation issues in interest rates. The only solution is a recession, which basically harms the economy, suppresses all economic activity, reduces incomes, and destroys investment and capital, and therefore destroys money supply. Well, that is quite a thing. It's quite the uh, intricate layer of things that are, are trying to be adjusted. And then it doesn't seem like in any of this, they can't account for government spending, the war in Ukraine, for example, or OPEC continuing to decrease production. Like they can't account for any of that in there. And it's already so complex. Right. I think the problem is trying to manage inflation. Like you really don't want that mandate because in many ways it's impossible. And what Lynn gets at is that there are just these these opposing forces. There are these two two sources of monetary inflation, which are have been balanced in the past and seem to be a little bit out out of balance today. At the same time, we seem to be slowly sliding into recession, which creates a disinflationary impulse. But on the other hand, globally, we seem to be set up for inflation in the future. So I think Lynn's take is that, yeah, we might see some short-term disinflation, inflation rates might come down, but long-term global supply chains are shot, global energy markets are becoming more fragmented. There's going to be a lot of onshoring, bringing manufacturing back into developed countries. And these are long-term inflationary movements, which gets to her second article, which is about the short-term 
to medium term economic outlook. All right. Because I got to say the talk on, you know, the social Twitters and the CNBCs and the Fox biz and the uh, financial magazines is everybody's feeling real positive. Inflation's down to a reported 3%. Some say it's even lower than that officially. And uh, you know what? The soft, soft landing. We don't even need a landing, dad. The bear market is over. It is game on. So I'm sure, I'm sure this is probably going to be pretty rosy and pretty positive. I wouldn't say so. So if I can just share my own opinion on this, I think there's this perception that if banks aren't suffering from bank runs, then the banking system is fine. My view is that the bank runs we saw at the earlier part of this year were just the smoke from the fire of the U.S. banking system. And the fire is, one, raising interest rates do hurt bank balance sheets, even if they do manage their duration risk on government securities that they bought during COVID, because during COVID, Jay Powell said that the Fed was going to keep rates low for five years, and then they rapidly reversed and jacked them up to 5%, which is the fastest rate increase in the history of the Federal Reserve. So, okay, you said five years, but then you turn around on a dime. So this narrative that the Fed is like so smart and they see what's coming is just completely false. They are always behind the curve. They're very reactive. So bank balance sheets aren't great across the board, but the real issue is commercial real estate because there have been government bulletins, I think I think from some banking regulators, maybe maybe at the state level, suggesting that banks work with their high quality commercial real estate borrowers to find a solution to stresses in commercial real estate borrowing. But what's going on here? Basically, there have been some sales of office buildings that have been empty for a long time and you know couldn't make debt payments and essentially defaulted. There was a sale in uh, New York uh, a few months ago and also one in um, San Francisco. I think we reported on them uh, with an article from Wall Street. And the markdowns on these buildings were very high. I think maybe one was marked down 60% from the asking price. Well, that means that the mortgage on that building was marked down 60%. 80% of these commercial real estate loans in the US are on regional bank balance sheets. So this is a massive explosion that is going to shred through these balance sheets. You know, I mean, I, I think essentially may force the nationalization of a large number of small and regional banks and credit unions who are holding this debt. You know, that's not going to change unless the commercial real estate market gets hot again and prices shoot up and surpass their pre-pandemic levels. But we know that's never going to happen because the world has rapidly transitioned to work from home. And, you know, being in downtowns in the U.S. is, on the whole, I think, pretty unpleasant. At least here in Seattle, the Seattle downtown is, um, I mean, I don't know how to, to describe it. You, you know, you will see people injecting drugs right outside the office of a Fortune 500 company. And just going to hang in there, just humped over or just passed out on the street. It's it's really sad. And just a side quick, just a quick note, family of mine moved out pre-COVID to Wyoming and came back to Washington for the 4th of July for the first time since then and shocked, just absolutely shocked at how many more homeless people there were in just a few years. You know, again, the homeless crisis, the sort of drug crisis, you know, these are smoke, in my view, this is the smoke from the fire of the American social contract going up in flames. This idea that everybody with a basic level of education has a shot at a stable economic existence, home ownership, healthcare, education for their children. It's just simply not true. So a lot of people 
get deposited in inner cities because inner cities do have some services. They do have some public transportation because obviously if you're homeless, you probably don't have a car and can't afford to buy gas and things. And, you know, there is foot traffic. So there is the possibility to you know, possibly uh, you know get some income from begging or something like that. And I mean, there's also once, you know, you get a certain concentration of, of homeless people, at least in Seattle, there is this breakdown of public order. And that does mean that some people can survive through essentially petty crime, stealing stuff from stores and stuff. And actually in downtown Seattle, a lot of stores have closed because the amount of um, pilfering and stuff like that was you know hard to deal with and it was a dangerous environment. So this was an aside, but the TLDR is that the banking crisis is not going away. The regional banks, which do, I think, the bulk of the actual economic lending activity in the US that lend to companies that finance operations, finance headcount, they are very distressed right now and there's no solution in sight. Lynn does not actually get into that at all. Her article is more about essentially how inflation and monetary policy change given the level of government debt. So one of her points is that a lot of the comparisons of today are with the 1970s, which was the last bout of uh, inflation in the US that most people can remember. And in the 1970s, inflation was generally due to bank lending, to a high level of money creation via bank lending and economic activity. And so raising interest rates was able to manage inflation. And like Lynn's last article pointed out, that doesn't work today because in the 2020s, fiscal deficits are so high. And actually, it's really fiscal deficits and government spending that are stimulating inflation. I mean, the STEMI checks and the PPP program, which was much bigger, which was basically a bailout to businesses, you know, free money for businesses, that was the real inflation stimulus. That money came directly from the federal government. There's no way to reduce inflation with interest rates if the inflation is coming from government spending, which is debt financed, because then you're increasing the interest rate on the debt, and therefore there are more debt payments, there's more government spending. Essentially, the Federal Reserve cannot manage government spending, so their inflation fighting is sort of pointless. You know, this the analogy is they are trying to put out a kitchen grease fire with water, and so as they make government spending more expensive, the government will borrow more to finance that spending. So it's this the cyclical, the sort of a spiral. There's also issues because the Social Security Trust Fund, which we've talked about, which has been a big parking place of US government debt. Do you remember how that fund was supposed to, contributions were supposed to peak in like 2030 and then rapidly sell off? Do you remember how okay. we talked about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it turns out it's already peaked and it's already selling off. I mean, we're just at the peak <laughs> and it's just dipping down. But basically, the Social Security uh, Trust Fund is going to dump US government securities into the market. This is really a problem. The Fed is really going to have to purchase all of these, which again, that's inflationary. They're creating dollars out of nothing to buy this government debt. And I think that this is kind of a roundabout discussion on how we are moving towards financial repression. Lynn actually uh, references a pretty fascinating IMF paper on how, you know, when you're in a situation like this, where you have inflation, you have high government debt, your only option is financial repression. You can harness the inflation to solve the government debt crisis. And the way you do this is you close off your economy, you make it so that your citizens can't escape into other currencies, and then you let inflation rage because inflation also increases GDP in nominal terms. And so as you let inflation rage and you essentially keep uh, government debt at a uh, interest rate under inflation, prices increase faster than the increase in government debt, as long as you don't massively increase government spending. And this is a way to sort of make the government balance sheet healthy. It's a way to, as long as you can keep a lid on uh, social forces and discontent during this period, which is essentially forcing citizens to 
reduce their purchasing power to pay for the government's debt buildup, essentially making citizens to pay for the government's mistakes. If you can maintain control through that, you can exit on the other side without any significant political reform and a much healthier government balance sheet. And then you can start the process all over again. And that basically seems to be the game plan. The spending continues, though. Like we haven't we I just read yesterday that we spent three trillion dollars since the debt ceiling deal was negotiated about a month ago or something like that. Absolutely. And the thing about the debt ceiling deal was there was no spending cap. It just said there is, you know, the next year or two have at it unlimited spending and then we'll cap it in a you know a year or two and have another fight about this so you can look at the policy there is no significant political power behind any reduction in u.s government spending because why would you how are you going to get elected if you're going to cut government spending which is the only thing going in this economy in my view yeah and people respond so badly when you take a good thing away like we've just witnessed this in the linux community you know something became slightly less available and slightly less free and it's caused weeks of backlash i just would only imagine on a political scale it's got to be that only a hundred times worse and so you lose your career if you're the one that cuts the program the obvious quintessential example would be social security and and the time bomb that that is nobody wants to be the politician that comes in and starts cleaning up. And if you look at France, what happened when they adjusted the retirement age a little bit, and now it's steamrolled into even more social issues over there. When the government takes away something that people have been paying into or have been promised their lifetime, I think people get justifiably upset and nobody wants to lose their career. So no politician (laughs) fights for that. So it's spend, 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 which is uh, fine, I guess. And I think that a good example to mention about this, um, this reversal when government spending and government deficits are super high, how the dynamics of fighting inflation change is Japan. And everyone says, hey, look, Japan has super high debt to GDP. You know, why can't the US do the same? And the answer is that, you know, Japan basically doesn't have a huge amount of loan creation in their economy. They have a very stagnant economy, even though they have these sort of titans of uh, industry like uh, Toyota. And so inflation rates are not a particularly effective inflation fighting tool, uh, mainly because, you know, it would raise government deficits and government public debt is already at 250% of GDP. So if they increased interest rates by 1%, they would actually increase the government deficit or or debt to uh, by 2.5%. This means that inflation is completely separate in their economy from the interest rate on government debt. And, you know, therefore, in Japan, how are they going to handle their uh, recent inflation problems? No idea. But it would probably, in my view, be on the supply side, because they're experiencing the same sort of supply chain constraints that drove prices higher in the US. Except it's much worse in Japan, because after the Fukushima disaster, they turned away from nuclear energy. And as a result, they need to import more natural gas, oil, and coal to power their economy. Man, if if only there was like a a revolutionary technology platform that new industries could be built on top of and that could revolutionize renewables and perhaps incentivize massive investments in our grid and uh, perhaps even eventually lead to energy independence. But I I just can't think of anything. I can't think of anything that could uh, could be useful in this regard. I just just wish there was something. That's Ripple, right? Isn't that XRP? (laughs) Of course. It's the of course. it's like the, yeah. the bridge currency. Is that what they said? You you use XRP for all your international transactions? 
Right. Yeah. Because, you know, you got to have something. And uh, why not XRP? What could go wrong? You know, they they uh, they centralize the uh, processing so you don't have to worry about any errors in a decentralized network where something goes wonky. You don't have to. These problems aren't, aren't an issue with XRP. It's for your bank to bank transfers. Don't you get it? What's really interesting is the apparently the Ripple consensus mechanism is there is no consensus mechanism. It's just time stamping according to the Ripple main server. Mm-hmm. So the concept of Ripple as a decentralized network is completely false. Not to mention it has a well-known founder who continues to be out there and uh, not only promoting Ripple, but actively attacking Bitcoin in order to position Ripple as a superior alternative. This is Brett Marlinghouse? Gnarly House. Gnarly House. Okay. This was the guy who gave money to Greenpeace to attack Bitcoin energy consumption. And then wasn't there that artist who created an art installation, which was like this scary skull with like Bitcoin eyes yeah. with nuclear power yeah. plant stacks the on kid its they, head? The kid they flew all over the world so he could take selfies with it. Yeah, okay. And then like Bitcoiners on Twitter DM'd him and were like, hey, we really like this um, this installation because actually nuclear power is really great. You should learn about it and you should learn about how Bitcoin energy works. And then the guy like kind of changed his tune and was like, actually, you know, this Bitcoin thing is not so bad. Yep. <laughs> it, was, it was wild. Yeah. You just got to change the code. That's what the, that's what he's known for. You know, the change the code campaign. Look, it's uh, software. He wants to make Bitcoin proof of stake, right? Yeah. Just change the code. Right. We can get into some of the issues with that later. So what happened recently with Ripple was they've had a long-running lawsuit with the SEC. And the issue is, was it legal for Ripple Labs to sell the XRP cryptocurrency token to the public? And there was been a ruling on Thursday by a Southern District of New York judge, SEC versus Ripple Labs, that XRP is both an unlawfully sold investment contract, but also a perfectly lawful something else when you sell it to retail on a cryptocurrency exchange. And my take is WTF what? (laughs) How exactly does that work? The only logic, and it just seems so crazy because it's like, of course, you know, you can dump on the poor consumers all you want. Uh, But the only logic I can think is that in the judge's mind, an exchange makes it decentralized. If you're selling it on these different exchanges, there isn't an like a direct person that you're buying from. It's not an over-the-counter deal. Then it's a it's a distributed buy. But of course, that would be ridiculous because all of these exchanges end up having private sweetheart deals with projects like XRP. And they, of course, hold some bags and they all have incentives. And it's a very incestuous, very, very dirty system. So it is not decentralized. It is not fairly distributed. And putting it on a couple of these crypto casinos, you know, there's really only three or four of them that, se- that sell XRP. Coinbase just relisted it with uh, with Glee. Um, that's not decentralized. That's not fairly distributed. So I think that's probably going to end up getting challenged. And I think there's also conflicting case law at this point because they're have definitely been cases against other cryptocurrencies that ruled that they were unregistered securities when they were sold to retail. The logic is that the fourth prong of the, sorry, the third prong of the Howey test fails because when XRP dumps their bags through an exchange onto retail, retail doesn't know who's selling the XRP. So how could they have an expectation of profit 
from the company that created XRP because they don't know who's selling. And that's ridiculous because XRP spend a huge amount of money on marketing and basically saying, hey, look, Ripple Labs just signed a deal with this company. Therefore, and like, and, and then they didn't say this out loud, but wink, wink, nudge, nudge, XRP price is probably going to go up. You better get some. Well, and it implies people are working behind the scenes to make these deals, which is going to raise the rates. I mean, a couple of years ago, I had an accountant friend tell us, you got to invest in this Ripple thing. They're going to be the back end between all the banks and it's going to be worth a million bucks. And how do you get there? You get there by a central group of people negotiating deals and managing that. And also, let's just talk about how preposterous the idea that you get to front run the banks is. I mean, it's a, it's a delicious thought. Oh, I get to be the one front running today, but it's not going to happen. That's not how institutional stuff works. Well, you did front run BlackRock. I did. That's true. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes you it did works too. out. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Larry Fink is buying our bags, I guess. Wow. I guess it could conceivably happen, but for large financial institutions like the serious banks to have a system that goes between them, they're going to want that to come from within, right? Either they're going to create something or another large financial private company that's already well-established will develop that technology and they'll use that. I mean, why would they want this wild kid outsiders project as their back-end technology? I, I can't really see it going beyond small projects. Yeah. And, and it's open source or relatively, I mean, there's not really any technology there. So there's no reason why any bank would pay to use Ripple when they could float their own or work with a consortium of banks and, you know, they could even copy it. It's not very good, but they could copy it if they wanted to. Nobody's investing in XRP as a store of wealth. Nobody is investing in XRP as the idea that maybe it could be a new form of currency for the world. They're investing in XRP because they expect the value to go up because of these commercial deals. That, it to me, seems like a clear security. Even if you're, if you're buying it over the counter or you're buying it from an exchange, you're buying it with the expectation that the centralized group is working to improve the returns. And I just, it seems like a security right there. So what's the context here? One in interesting thing is that we see different judges, different parts of the U.S. judicial branch interpreting the facts differently. So that's interesting. And I think that's by design. This is a system that is not designed to work in tandem. It's supposed to fight each other and hopefully come to a consensus around these things. So that's not a huge problem. This is definitely seen as a win for Ripple, even though it's definitely going to get challenged. And frankly, it seems unlikely to survive a challenge because I, like, I don't know, did they get like the one judge who didn't read the Howey test or doesn't understand how, I mean, clearly this judge has never been to a cryptocurrency exchange because. Or we're going for a new, a new normal, a new definition, a new interpretation. And maybe this slides. Yeah. I mean, this would be a boon to all of the scam financial companies that want to just dump unregistered securities on retail. That said, you know, if everyone can do it, how profitable will it really be? However, what's the real story here? Why is this really interesting? And the answer is what's happening here with XRP directly affects Ethereum. Because even though Ethereans don't want to admit this, the Ethereum presale has never been blessed by the SEC. There was this weird speech by a former SEC person who said Ethereum was probably sufficiently decentralized. And that speech was basically taken to mean that the SEC had blessed ICOs and you could just go ahead and, you know, scam to your heart's content. But that's not an official take, even though 
it, you know, it was interpreted as one. And this ruling is actually not helpful to Ethereum because the judge ruled that when Ripple Labs formed investment contracts with venture capital firms and institutions to sell XRP, those institutions were dealing directly with Ripple Labs, and therefore they had an expectation of profit from Ripple Labs' efforts when they bought the token. That's the exact same relationship with anyone who bought the Ethereum presale. So we can admit that buying the Ethereum presale was probably one of the best financial decisions anyone could have possibly made, given how Ethereum's worked out. So I don't think anyone's complaining. But by this ruling, that was an unregistered securities offering. And that's not the part that's going to be challenged when the SEC contests this ruling. They're going to challenge the part that says, hey, the initial sale is an unregistered securities offering. But then when you go ahead and dump it on retail, that's fine. I mean, the SEC is not going to let that stand. But this is an important case to watch because it does speak to potential legal challenges to Ethereum. And Ethereum, as Saifedean Amus put it, is the mother asshole that shits out all shitcoins. I'm going to bleep out most of that. Yeah, I believe it is the mother asshole from which all shitcoins are birthed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's the cursey episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, I had to think about it. What if this? What if this became kind of a you know a precedent and a bunch of other you know saloner and um, you know they basically it created a new a new normal where if you were really careful on your presale and uh, you primarily did the early initial distribution on exchanges, perhaps you could squeak by. And is that a bad thing? Well, I think it could be in a sense that more people are going to get separated from their money, um, and that is sad and it gives the industry a bad reputation but i don't think it really alters bitcoin's trajectory or it really impacts bitcoin because um things continue on right since this xrp news the price of bitcoin has mostly gone upwards Uh, larry fink was on cnbc this morning again talking about bitcoin and how it's an international currency so to me i think the the market's already decided that Bitcoin is the serious asset. Uh, there, and these others are kind of experimental technology platforms that, like a technology stock, may perform well one day. And reading some of the commentary around this ruling, I came across this interesting essay by Brian Jacutot, Jacotet, by a lawyer named Brian. And he gets into how Bitcoin interacts with the Howey test and why that creates this very high bar for altcoins to pass the Howey test. And the issue, the issues are multi-pronged, but essentially every altcoin has a founding team. Every altcoin has decentralization issues and Bitcoin doesn't seem to have any of these issues. And so the real question I think is you know, potentially a case or more official exploration of how Bitcoin and the Howey test interact. Because if there is a perception or a, or a sense that there is any points with the Howey test where Bitcoin fails, which, you know, the general consensus is it doesn't, it completely passes it, then it seems very difficult for any altcoin to ever pass through that requirement. I'd also like to mention that Brian's Twitter page has the uh, Bitcoin monster nuclear skull uh, art on it. So there you go. Yeah, he's really going after (laughs) the change the code uh, meme. Yeah. Yeah. Can we just touch on that for a second? Because it's so silly. And um, I saw some video on Reddit this week of billboards, large building size, vertical billboards 
proclaiming that uh, you know a Bitcoin transaction uh, wastes as much emissions as a million cars or something ridiculous like that, and that we have to save the planet before BlackRock destroys us all. Just change the code, change it to proof of stake, and solve the problem. Yeah, what's the real issue? That BlackRock doesn't have an XRP trust. That uh, Grayscale never wanted an XRP trust. That's the real issue. It's interesting they're buying those ads after the BlackRock ETF announcement. Uh, but I find this concept, and I've heard it actually brought up in Senate testimony before by idiots as well, by some actor who likes to go around and crap talk Bitcoin all the time. I can't remember his name, but he's still out there on the scene. And uh, he, you know, he says, well, it's just 10 developers. You just got to convince 10 developers and they can flip the whole thing to proof of stake in a year. I think they should go for it and see what the implications <laughs> are. Wouldn't it be awesome? Wouldn't that be great if they actually did like a, a, a BIP that was to move it to proof of stake? <laughs> it would be funny because you could kill open source in the process. You could kill Red Hat. You could digit it. The, the collateral damage would be so enormous. And so I, I'm expecting that at some point in the next five years, frankly, just because, you know, these are these are complicated issues. You know, you can't regulate Bitcoin without regulating the Linux kernel. And if you regulate the Linux kernel, well, I don't know. Are we going back to the Stone Age? Is it the Bronze Age? I'm not sure. You know, we, we can't have all the stuff we have today if we don't have open source and free communication networks and software development the way we've been doing it. What I don't understand is uh, what's uh, what's the uh, guy's name that's uh, the XRP guy? What's his name? I think Brett Garlinghouse. What I don't understand about Brett here is he's been around for a long time, right? Like XRP is one of the OG altcoin scams. And uh, he has seen people try to fork Bitcoin. Uh, he's seen what tries to happen. I mean, he must. How could he be around for so long and not intrinsically understand that for Bitcoin to be altered significantly, the core developers would have to accept it. The node operators would have to accept it. The miners would have to accept it. And the community would have to accept it. And it would never make it past the community discussion, let alone ever get merged as a pull request, let alone then it would never be accepted by the node operators or the miners. It's not a serious proposal. What XRP is trying to do is to get a legal carve out that gives them a moat versus other altcoins and versus Bitcoin. Because anybody who's done a little bit of research about Bitcoin, about Ethereum, about XRP, will see pretty quickly that XRP is a complete and utter scam and there's no purpose for it. There's no use for it outside of pure speculation. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Ethereum because of their political issues and some of the design choices they've made, but you can do things with it. Bitcoin, you can do things with it. Larry Fink called it a currency on cable news. I mean, not that we should get our validation from Larry, but if he's noticed, then you know he's only eight years late. You can use it for money. Well, if he's noticed, what's what I think to note on why I think the Fink thing gets brought up right now is um, who's the financial guy? Who's the banker? Who's the big hotshot that's going to go out there now and talk crap about bitcoin because the first thing somebody's going to say is well larry fink larry fink likes it but you're gonna are you think in that industry you're gonna go out there and, and say larry fink's an idiot i don't think so it's a it's sort of a huge signal to like how people are going to talk about it and if you go over to forbes right now which i'm not a big fan of but you go over there and you look up bitcoin since the etf announcement their coverage has flipped 180 and now it's all about how bitcoin can save the environment i'm not even kidding you I took a screenshot and shared it in our Bitcoin matrix chat at one point because it was seven or eight articles in a row about how Bitcoin can incentivize renewables, about how you're wrong about the energy use of Bitcoin. It's They have 180 flipped 
And I think it's because you're, you're not, you know, these, these, in, these, all these people follow the leader and you're going to be a fool if you go out there and say the leader is wrong on something. They're just, if they don't agree, they're just going to stay quiet. Ripple has had this meme campaign, change the code, which is a not in good faith request to change Bitcoin's consensus to proof of stake. And the difference between proof of stake and proof of work, you know, on paper at least, is that proof of work, you basically use physical hardware and energy to guess the hash of the next block. And if you guess it, you get a subsidy. So this is the way that Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network emits new coins in a fair fashion because the miners, you know, essentially the incentive is that the cost to produce a block will converge to whatever the subsidy plus fees on that block are. So it's a pretty fair way to admit Bitcoin and it removes the political issues of giving Bitcoin to early adopters or insiders or the founder. What proof of stake does is it gives the block reward to a node operator that has locked away some of their cryptocurrency token into a special address or contract called a staking contract. And the idea with the proof of stake security model is, listen, we know proof of work works, but you know it wastes energy. And therefore, wouldn't it be better to just say, listen, I own, say, Ethereum, and so I'm going to stake it, and I'm going to be a good staking operator, validate transactions and take transaction fees or whatever in sort of like a, a good faith way, because look, I staked Ethereum, I hold Ethereum, and that means that I would never do anything to hurt the network. And, you know, I think on a surface level, sure, that kind of makes sense, except it's not really true because people have different time frames, people have different incentives. You know, if you're an early adopter, you might have huge amounts of Ethereum, you might have different incentives than someone who has less Ethereum. So the initial security assumptions, I, I think, are pretty bad. But what's happened since the Ethereum Shanghai upgrade, which moved Ethereum to proof of work, is that people can stake their tokens themselves on their own node. And that means that you get sort of staking rewards paid to your node that you actually can withdraw because uh, Ethereum has had a network upgrade that allows uh, node runners or stakers to withdraw their funds. But you can actually get the best of both worlds if you take your Ethereum and you stake it on a platform like Lido. Because what you can do is if you stake with a third party and everyone else is staking with the same third party, you lock up your Ethereum and you get paid rewards and they might charge a fee for this, but then they give you a token which represents your locked up Ethereum. So actually, you get the best of both worlds. I mean, I've always kind of wondered why no one has pointed out that platforms that provide a liquid staking token break the proof of stake security model because now staking is costless. I mean, sure, you have custody risk, you have technology risk because the staking platform could steal your funds, lose your funds, screw up their node, but they've given you a token that represents your stake. And as long as that token is trading for roughly the value of Ethereum, you're staking costlessly. Like, do I have this wrong? I, I just don't understand why no one thinks this is a problem. This has been my thought from the very beginning. You take these tokens and then what do you do with them? Do you sell those? Do you... You can sell them. You can mess around in DeFi. You get loans, right? Yeah, exactly. DeFi loans. And then you can speculate. And what? A, how much fun is that? What a great time. And what we've seen this is a research from Glassnode, is that you know, basically there has been increased demand for these liquid staking tokens. And it's, you know, it looks like it's probably hedge funds and other professional investors who are playing around in this DeFi market. Because according to Glassnode's calculations, it looks like the average balance for liquid staking tokens is around $100,000. 
in my mind, that means that the participants in this market are either super high net worth individuals who have so much money that $100,000 in a weird staking token is no big deal, or they're professional investors and hedge funds, and they're institutional. And this has always been my observation, which is that DeFi is a total mirage. There are no regular people in DeFi, or relatively few. It is a place for professional investors and hedge funds to try out complex and sophisticated trading strategies that they used to use in traditional markets, but there's more volatility and therefore more opportunity in DeFi. So I just think that's kind of an interesting observation, sort of confirms my biases on this. What else are they going to do with those funds, right? That's the other thing that's sort of clever about the system is it sort of keeps the money inside the system since they can't really spend it everywhere. They could lock it up. They could get some dye, you know, they could do something like that, and then they could eventually go buy something. But it feels like just places to stash money is what it feels like. It's just, let's go stash it in this thing and we'll, we'll make some yield and all that. It, it really does seem sort of silly to me, but maybe that's why I've never really taken to it. And I suppose somebody listening, maybe you should boost in and let us know. Somebody listening has probably made a living off of this because I remember during the bull market, when things were really still popping off, I heard from a couple listeners who were making their day, their day, their daily living just from trading cryptocurrency kind of as day traders. They paid the bills that way for a long time. I'd love to hear back from them. No, I mean, this is not schadenfreude. I mean, if, if they can also do that during down markets, that would be really interesting to me because, you know, I'm always looking for a career change, you know, so please boost in with uh, trading strategies for your Bitcoin dad so he can, you know, try and try it out. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Maybe that's the way to go, right? So according to DeFi Llama right now, there's $45.49 billion of total value locked up on, on the DeFi networks. Right. And we're very skeptical of TVL metrics because you know, it's basically the perfect way to take an illiquid altcoin and then lock it up so no one can sell it and say, hey, look, we've got a billion dollars locked up. Well, you know, right. I can generate that. You know, I, I, in an afternoon, if we were sufficiently motivated, we could create the dad coin obviously the crypto dad coin. And then, you know, we could create a billion of them. We could make uh, one sale where I give you a dad coin and you give me, you know, a hundred dollars. And now we would have a hundred billion dollar market cap of dad coin. And then we could lock half of it into a staking contract and say, look, there's 50 billion locked. This is such a hot project. And then we could dump the rest of those bags on market participants who buy our marketing and, you know, want to lock up their dad coin for dad coin rewards or something. Right. This is super easy to game. And anyone yeah. who says TVL is this great metric, look at TVL, is an absolute idiot and or scammer. And I am talking scammer. about that guy. The Cardano guy. Cardano. Yeah. Cardano. Donner? Just in a little interesting note. So I said that it had 45 bill in uh, locked up value, quote unquote. This is the Cardano thing? No, this is DeFi Llama, just oh, okay. looking at the entire DeFi market. So it's got 45 bill locked up. 15.38 billion of that is Lido tokens. So there you go. Like, what are you going to do with those? Right. What else are you going to do with those other than lock them up over here? So like you get also, <laughs> you, just, that's all on Lido. That is uh -huh. all on Lido. Lido is a regulated company. You get a one letter from the government. Hey, all those Lido ETH wallets, we're going to need to put them under management because national security or something. That can happen. And it's just completely ignored and no one cares. Yep. Yeah, it's something. Overall, though, volume and, and all that is down. Since the Fed started tightening, it's kind of just gone sideways for a long time. But for a while, for a while, it was it was up to 180 billion of locked up value. So now they're down to 45. A lot of lot of funny money over there. I think you should drop an ad 
for that Red Hat conversation on luck. That was so good. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by my podcast, Linux Unplugged. In fact, go to linuxunplugged.com slash 517 and get our take on the Red Hat news. I kind of teased that a bit. There is a big change in enterprise Linux land and the community is still digesting it. 517, we really break it down. And I think we give you a perspective that isn't very common online. And then <laughs> coming up, so I mean, just subscribe because coming up in episode 519, uh, we're going to respond to some of the additional updates that have come. And we have a guest from Red Hat joining to answer some of the tough questions. So 517 and 519, if you want to get the inside scoop on the Red Hat situation at linuxunplugged.com. Yeah, I think that's a really grown up conversation you had about that. A lot of people don't quite grasp the complexity of having a business in open source and how that brings a lot of benefits to open source. But don't expect companies to do it out of the goodness of their heart. If people have to contribute to open source out of the goodness of their heart, then the model sort of fails in my view. And while you might not like the things that Red Hat are doing, do you want to move all of your infrastructure over to Debian? I mean, they have a great release out, but you're not going to get a lot of great stuff. Or like, you know, what people really like with Rails, like the centralized update management and support. Yeah. And, you know, Linus Torvalds himself said that Linux has always kind of thrived when everybody's kind of working to their own incentives. And so when you have a company that's operating for a long time that isn't to their own incentives, that generally is going to get a course correction, especially during tight economic times. And Bitcoin is similar, right? Bitcoin really thrives when everybody sort of works towards their own incentives. The node operators, the developers, the miners, the users, everybody sort of works towards their own incentives and benefits the network that way. And it's one of those few technologies where that actually works out pretty well. Okay, I guess that brings us to Bitcoin Optech. Pew pew. Yeah, let's get into the Optech because uh, my favorite thing in the world, which you absolutely hate and are constantly bad talking, the Lightning Network, uh, might be getting might be getting some cleanup. Rusty Russell has posted to the mailing list with a pull request to remove some features that are no longer supported by uh, modern Lightning implementations just to keep things clean. Because, you know, the uh, developers behind the Lightning Network like to keep it lean, mean, an efficient operating system that can scale well and answer modern requirements. It's a great network. There is also another waiting for confirmation post from Gloria Zhao, which talks about transaction relay, mempool inclusion, and mining transaction selection. Just to review, package relay is a proposal to allow Bitcoin nodes to send packages of transactions as opposed to sharing single transactions. The advantage of package relay is that you can put child pays for parent transactions together because if the transactions get separated and your mempool has the child transaction but not the parent transaction, obviously it's not going to work or vice versa. However, there are some issues with package relay because you also have to take into account how place by fee transactions work. And obviously, package relay is uh, another vector for denial of service attacks. So it's a pretty long post about this. It also gets into ephemeral anchors, which are this uh, kind of interesting idea to create a um, kind of ephemeral anchor transaction for cashing out lightning channels. But it's, it's just really a placeholder for a future transaction. And what's really cool about that is that you won't get into this situation where if you need to close a lightning channel, but your lightning channel was created with a five sat per V byte fee, but now the fee is 20 sats per V byte, you know, you won't run into this situation where the transaction doesn't make it into uh, the uh, closure window, two week closure window. And, you know, now you have an issue of someone being able to sweep funds or broadcast an old channel state because the ephemeral anchor allows you to create a new high fee transaction to get it cleared faster. So a lot of cool stuff there. 
check it out. It's nice to see a good Medioptech, you know? They're back. It's full of good stuff. Remember, you can get in touch with the pod, Bitcoin Dad Pod at protonmail.com. Do the Twitter thing. You could give it a shot, I guess. Bitcoin Dad Pod on Twitter. Or do the real thing. Tap into the Matrix. Get us in real time. Consider joining our Matrix channel. Details over at my website, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Matrix. I like Element. If you want something a little lean and mean, I suggest Fluffy Chat. And then we have uh, two Bitcoin rooms. One that's just sort of, sort of for discussion and current events. And the other that is for questions. And uh, you won't get yelled at for asking questions about all coins either everybody's welcome again matrix details at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix or we'll have links in the show notes now our mega boost did not show up on my node so this is news to me but it's also a mega boost what a pleasant surprise right i think so clarkian came in with fifty-eight thousand and eight sats great episode gentlemen great discussion on mis and disinformation it's uh, my thoughts it's been my thoughts on the issues for a while i read this good article on kyc and aml and thought you might want to review it i worked at banks for a while and i had to take yearly training on it and i hated it and he includes the link i'll put that in the show notes too and i'll take a look at that send it in with fountain thanks for the baller boost clarkian we we really appreciate it yeah thanks for boosting in and i uh I get the numerology in the boost. Hey, misinformation and disinformation is kind of becoming a culture war talking point. And in a way, like, why does Bitcoin have to get involved in that? I think the answer is that a lot of things that are no longer consensus narratives are being labeled as disinformation. And we kind of have to be aware of this process because I'm confident that common sense understandings of Bitcoin and open source technology and decentralized technology may be labeled misinformation in the future. And so we just want to be aware of this sort of process and system of kind of labeling certain types of speech and then, you know, using that to invalidate people who hold those views. So obviously, there is something here to this debate. And there is a lot of um, strong feelings about it. But I think it is good to touch on it and at least try to dissect it in a kind of dispassionate way. Kiro boosts in 4,000 sats. I've heard Chris talk about this podcast on his other shows, but never realized that he was a full-time host here. I'm not big on Bitcoin, not yet at least, and related news, but I can listen to Chris talk about anything. Maybe I'll learn something new. Thanks so much for boosting in. And I am the same. I can listen to Chris talk about anything. Oh, stop. I wonder if is it is it I know I've asked before, so I feel bad, but I want to believe and I think I've been corrected, but I want to believe it's Cairo, right? Because we have a local radio and television station, K-I-R-O, Cairo Radio. And so I always think Cairo when I see that. Um, thank you for the boost, too. And stick around for a bit. Could always dip around in the back catalog, too, because there has been you know some really big things happening in the world. And turns out there's usually a pretty big financial context to them. Mere Mortals podcast comes in with a row of ducks coming from the Fountain app. Glad to hear you've changed your views on the misinformation, Dad. I feel it ultimately gets down to some people trying to control what other people want to consume, usually for their own protection, of course. That combined with the for the greater good approach are the source of a lot of despicable behavior. Go Bitcoin. Thanks, Mere Mortals. Totally agree. It's just that it's not a terrible idea to control some behaviors. I mean, an extreme example, of course, is my daughter. She's two years old and we sort of need to control her behavior because she lacks the ability to self-regulate. I guess the tricky thing is sort of looking at the consequences of that control, right? Like, obviously, if we shout at her, if she does things that are unhealthy or dangerous, you know, that's not good. So, um, you know, broadening that to our fellow citizens, you know, here's a question. Should the amount of sugar in food be regulated? You know, there's a serious problem in the U.S. where the U.S., 
uh, companies generally put like much more sugar in food in the U.S. than in other countries where there might be stricter controls on this. And there's a clear health outcome. I mean, people in the U.S. generally have more incidence of health problems related to sugar in their diet. So obviously, this is not misinformation exactly, but there is this issue of sort of, you know, there is kind of a social benefit to certain constraints. And I think the challenge is, is negotiating that. And uh, obviously, who creates the constraint? You know, what is their incentive? Do they really care about wider society or do they have some other right. motivation? I wonder, maybe somebody could boost in with a, a good example of from history where the group or government or leader that was suppressing information was on the right side of history. I can't think of any examples, but maybe somebody knows of a time where, you know, misinformation was used positively. <laughs> I'd like to know because generally I, when I look back and review history, the people that were trying to control speech and prevent certain things from being discussed and shun certain ways of thinking or behaving were typically on the wrong side of history from what I can, what I can recall. But I'd love to hear some other, some other examples if you have them out there. BTC realists boosts in lucky eights. 8,888 sats. I can recall a very big item of disinformation that definitely hurt over a million people. The disinformation was that Iraq had WMDs. Governments are the only ones that deserve to be censored since they have proven to consistently be the worst propagandists. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember the good old WMD scandal. In fact, if you recall... A little bit before that, too, there was the whole anthrax situation where, for some reason, the government critters that were against going into Iraq to get the WMD started getting letters with anthrax in them that was actually traced back to an FBI lab in the United States. Because it turns out these anthrax uh, strains that are deadly are highly traceable. And I didn't know that at the time, but I learned, and I remember thinking like, what is going on? Like, why are we going to Iraq? What did they have to do with crashing planes into the towers? And why are we like sending letters with, with this white powder in there? And then ultimately we never found those weapons of mass destruction. And those very same war hawks are still involved in politics today. They're still calling for intervention in uh, other countries today, right now. Yeah, that was a crazy time. And the 1 million reference is the number of uh, Iraqis who have uh, died in the invasion and then the resulting civil war when the fragile social structure of Iraq was disrupted. And we don't really have a way to measure opportunity loss for the generations. We don't really measure the loss and the strain to our service members. So that's probably, if anything, a lowball number. You know, there's a couple other, uh, MCOT came under the thousand sat cutoff, but I thought maybe I'd mention it just because he said it was, he, the reason why he liked when we did a breakdown of that, uh, that cryptocurrency that was boosted and requested not too long ago, he thought it was helpful because hearing those criticisms every so often helps them sort of convey the conversation, frame the conversation in their mind when they're, when they're talking to others. So I thought that was an interesting bit of insight. I appreciated that. But yeah, we got, we got a little bit better boost representation. We're not, we're not blowing the doors off this week, but we had eight total boosters thank you everybody this has been the bitcoin dad pod recorded on friday july 14th 2023 i've been your bitcoin dad and i'm here as always with with me it's chris thanks for joining us everybody see you next time